0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Dr. Stuart Nunnally to the show today. He is a partner in the dental practice of Nunnally and Freeman. He is one of the few people, I would say not only in the United States, but in the world that is doing revisionist dentistry, whole systems dentistry, And is looking after every facet of how what goes on in the mouth affects the body and what goes on in the body affects the mouth. Some years ago, he suffered from Lou Gehrig's disease and found out that it had something to do with the kind of dentistry that was in his own mouth, unbeknownst to him. I have gone through a full dental revision with him, so I can tell you that what we speak about today is true. I found out about Dr. Nunnally when I went into my own dentist in Los Angeles to find out that I was losing my front tooth, that it was being reabsorbed, and that the doctor in Los Angeles wanted to do a root canal, which I refused. I was horrified (laughs) that I was losing my front tooth. I didn't know about dental revision. I knew I wanted my mercury fillings out. I didn't know that the other fillings in my mouth also had toxic materials that were impacting my health. I learned about cavitations, about vitamin C, and many other things that Dr. Stuart Nunnally is going to talk to us about today. I want to tell you just a little bit about him. He trained at the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio, where he graduated from, along with Dr. Friedman. He is a member of the ADA, the Academy of General Dentistry, the Texas Dental Association, the Heart of Texas Dental Society, the American Dental Society of Anesthesiology, at the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. He says on his website that they provide a wonderful standard of care. And I have to tell you, it is a demarcation in the standard of care, in my experience, going to a doctor or a dentist. It is phenomenal. I even learned that there's a whole new way that we can clean our teeth. I'm very proud to bring you Dr. Stewart Nunley. Welcome to It's Rainmaking Time.
1: Thank you so much, Kim. What a beautiful introduction and I appreciate that.
0: I want to start with the context where you thought that you were a holistic dentist only to find out that you got very sick. And what happened to you? Give the audience a context for what this is about.
1: Sure, you know I did feel like I was a holistic dentist because when I got sick 10 years ago I had not put a mercury-containing filling in for 20 years at that time. I really thought that was sort of what encompassed being a holistic dentist. But 10 years ago, I began to have neuromuscular issues. We thought after months of being tested that it it truly uh, had the possibility of being ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. I actually never formally got that diagnosis, and I'm convinced that I did not have ALS, but I certainly had the symptoms of it. But when I got referred to the... uh, ALS Center in Houston, I called a dentist who had lost his license uh, years earlier for telling people to have their mercury fillings and root canal teeth removed, and his name was Hal Huggins. I called him because at that point in my life, I was looking for any hope this side of heaven that I could find. And so I met him, and under his auspices, I had all of my dentistry removed and changed out. We measured me to see where I was on the mercury end of things, and my mercury levels were about as high as I've ever seen.
0: How were they measured, Dr. Nunley?
1: At that time, we did what was called a DMPS challenge test, where the drug or the chemical known as DMPS is delivered through an IV, and then... You collect your urine and you determine how much mercury is in there. And I actually doubled the level that the laboratory had ever measured at that point, which was an indicator that I had, of course, been working around mercury for years, removing mercury fillings, but I had been taking no precaution myself. And it had accumulated in my body to the level that I began to have these neuromuscular issues.
0: Would you say now, knowing what you know, that unbeknownst to most dentists, a little strap around their mouth is not going to be enough?
1: Well, that's absolutely the truth. We know that the little paper masks that dentists wear do nothing to protect them from mercury exposure dentists and their staff and the patients literally sit in a little mercury vapor fog when the mercury is removed, unless when the mercury filling is removed, unless there are special precautions being taken in the office. And all of those can be implemented. They're not that difficult to do, but they require several things. One would be sort of an industrial strength negative ion generator, which is situated right behind the dentist and the patient. And that blows over the patient as the dentistry is being done, and it literally pushes any of the mercury vapor toward the foot of the patient where another collector, a mercury collector, is situated. That's one of many parts of the protocol that I would suggest following in order to avoid exposure, and especially for dentists. You know, Kim, as dentists, we have some of the absolute worst neurological history of any profession. We're we're number one in divorce. We're number one in suicide. We're number one in depression. And I have to think, although, uh, of course, the American Dental Association would disagree with me, but I have to think that the majority of that is due to our exposure
0: to mercury. That's fascinating. I always wondered why that analysis was done, you know, why number one in divorce, suicide, and depression. I've wondered about that for years. I never correlated it to mercury.
1: I think it is. And we know in the laboratory, for example, with experimental animals, if you want to induce depression in an animal or an autoimmune issue, you typically do it with a mercury-containing compound. And so as dentists, we're exposed to that day in and day out. And it's interesting, some dentists, I have a few dentists who are in their 80s, and they seem to be functioning very well neurologically. I have others, including classmates, who are having terrible neurological issues, and we've certainly had suicides out of my dental class of 1980. We know, actually, that there's a subset of the population who is very susceptible to mercury, who simply don't detoxify it well. I know I'm in that category, And uh, I have a feeling, of course, that many of my peers also are in that category and just simply cannot detoxify it.
0: Why is it, do you think, that many of the dentists who use a rubber dam when they're taking out mercury, some of them have trivialized the process, saying, look, we have a rubber dam. It's like infinitesimal amounts of vapor, if there is any, quote, end quote, and they're making a big deal about it. Why is it so trivialized, and why do the dentists who really I believe most of them are for the patient well-being, would say that the rubber dam that they're using to remove the mercury is sufficient.
1: Well, it's trivialized because the research is not widely known on the fact that the mercury vapor penetrates the rubber dam. And so unless there is some sort of an evacuation device underneath the rubber dam, it penetrates the other solution to that is to use what's called a nitrile dam. And there's far less penetration of the mercury vapor through that dam than there is through a rubber dam. So I think usually when, when those sorts of protocols are, well, when they're shunned by people, it's simply because they're not aware of research that's been done to demonstrate their effectiveness.
0: And probably it's also so narrowly known that it's not really considered part of a standard of care. Correct. The science of it. Now, I want you to share a bit about what you do with cavitations, what they are, and why you go through the protocol that you do with people.
1: Sure, I'd love to. And let me just begin with a quick anecdote, because I'll have to say 15 years ago, I had never heard the term cavitation. But I happened to be at a brain longevity conference about 15 years ago in Tucson, I was the only dentist there. I was sitting next to a wonderful physician, a lady physician from North Carolina, and she began to ask me. She found out I was a dentist, and she said, do you do cavitations? And, well, of course, I said, of course I do. And she said, you do? And I said, yes, I do them all day. Well, I didn't know what she was talking about. I thought she was talking about cavities. She went on to tell me, she said, well, we have this clinic in North Carolina, which is a holistic, integrative medical clinic, and we see people from all over the world. And she said, I can't tell you how often we're unable to make a diagnosis or determine how their disease came on. But she said, I can't tell you how often the patients have gotten well when we send them to have their cavitations cleaned out. I knew at that point we weren't talking about the same thing. So I began to do some research into cavitations. Cavitation is a hole in the jawbone that's filled with bacteria. And typically, the bacteria arrive there because when the tooth is extracted, the bacteria from the mouth filter into that area. A little cap of bone grows over and the gum tissue grows over, but you're left with a little cesspool of bacteria. So that's what a cavitation is. It's known by other names, and other bones in our body get it. The hip is the next most common bone to get it, but the most common is the upper and lower jawbone, and they most often happen after an extraction.
0: Do you mean of your wisdom teeth or any teeth?
1: Well, any teeth. The most common site is the wisdom tooth. There's a little ligament that supports the tooth to the bone. That ligament serves much like a shock absorber does. It's one of the reasons why you can take a healthy tooth. And if you wiggle that tooth a little bit, even a healthy tooth has just a little bit of movement in it. It's because there's a ligament supporting the tooth to the bone. In dentistry, when a tooth is removed, we should also remove that ligament. And oftentimes it's not removed. The ligament in itself precludes good bone formation. And there are a number of other things that we should do as dentists, in my opinion, to really get that bone to form after a tooth is removed. We need to really clean that socket well, especially if there's been an existing infection. And then we need to do other things, I think, to help make sure that that clot matures. We want a good, healthy blood clot in that area. And when a good, healthy blood clot matures, you will actually form bone. And that's what we're trying to do. Unfortunately. Many times we extract a tooth and the patient hops in his or her car and drives down some bumpy road getting home and they vibrate that clot and dislodge it. And that is a recipe for a cavitation.
0: How interesting. How many dentists would you say around the country that you've had the pleasure to meet that are also doing this?
1: Difficult to say. Uh, When I started doing this 10 years ago, I wouldn't think there would have been more than just a handful of us, but I'm sure there are 100 dentists around the country, at least, that are cleaning these out. Now, it's very well documented in the literature. There are certainly close to 200 peer-reviewed articles on this subject. It's still not widely accepted. I think that we as dentists have a real difficult time accepting the fact that we need to maybe do a more judicious job of really robustly cleaning out that area when we remove a tooth in order to get good bone formation. But for the most part, I think at least the idea of cavitations has moved past the controversial stage and is more widely accepted now.
0: That's great. What is the issue with bacteria and why is so much emphasis on getting rid of bad bacteria? There are a lot of people who would say, doctor, there's so much bacteria in the body and in the mouth, you're never going to be able to get rid of it. Why is there so much attention to this area? For example, why do you not agree with doing root canals? Why don't you just leave it? Well,
1: again, a great question. The answer to that has recently become simple. Let me just back up. This idea of removing a tooth rather than doing a root canal is not a new notion. As long ago as a 100 years, research was being done to determine whether root canal teeth still remained infected and whether they remained toxic. And that research was done by an incredibly brilliant man by the name of Weston Price, and he actually published two volumes, 1,200 pages, in 1923, dealing with this subject. Most of that research was shelved, and dentistry became convinced that we needed to save every tooth, and we're certainly trained that way. And we really have, from Weston Price, as you can imagine, 100 years ago, we didn't have any idea of knowing what bacteria were involved, how potent were those bacteria. But now we have that data because we're able to analyze the bacteria from a root canal tooth or from an extraction site or from a cavitation by DNA analysis. So now we can tell exactly what bacteria are in there. And the reason I think it's very important to have these cleaned out is because the scope of the bacteria and the magnitude of their toxins is absolutely amazing. And once again, I have to say, Kim, some people can tolerate those toxicities well, seem to tolerate those bacteria. At least we're not aware of clinical signs and symptoms that the people are undergoing. But others, of course, report after having had root canal treatment or an infected tooth or having developed a cavitation, others report being ill. Now that we know the type of bacteria that are in there, it's easy to understand why, because they're some of the most potent anaerobic bacteria literally known to man.
0: Like botulism and other things, right?
1: Those bacteria that form botulism are called Clostridia botulinum. There are many different species of Clostridia, and certainly we find various species of Clostridia in these sites because they're anaerobic bacteria. They love to get in areas where there is not a good oxygen supply.
0: I would think that the dental community would be so excited to have these protocols available that they would integrate it as part of the standard of care and be excited about it.
1: Some of the challenges are that these protocols were developed years ago before we had definite scientific knowledge of the reason for doing it. In other words, the practitioners who began to put these protocols in place in my opinion, were way ahead of their time. They were astute observers of their patients, and they determined over the years, they really, by trial and error, determined that, gosh, this protocol works better. These patients seem to heal better. These patients retain their blood clots after an extraction better. And so we had a series of practitioners over the years who developed protocols, but they were not mainstream. It's very difficult to turn a ship when you have 150,000 dentists in the country all trained a certain way, and a few so-called renegades come along and say, you know what, that's really not working well. It's very difficult for the mainstream to accept that until the scientific evidence catches up with it. In my opinion, the scientific evidence has definitely caught up with those protocols, and I honestly believe that the protocols that we're following today in terms of really trying to keep a patient as healthy as possible, I think the science is there to fully support those
0: protocols. Your partner talked about how in the standard of care in medicine, when a part of the body is dead, doctors would never leave it in the body. And yet in the mouth, it's part of standard of care to leave a dead tooth in the body therefore requiring a root canal. So my question to you is, how many miles of the patient's tubules are in a tooth that needs a root canal, for example?
1: A front tooth has two to three miles of microscopic tubules in it that a dentist can never get to when he or she does a root canal. For example, a front tooth typically has one major nerve canal, And part of what a dentist does when he does a root canal is to clean out that major canal and fill it with a material, and that constitutes doing a root canal. In the course of that, the blood supply to the tooth is severed so that there's no way now for our own immune system to come and supply any of our immune system to it, any white blood cells and so forth. So the two to three miles of tubules sit there and they are filled filled with bacteria and now the bacteria have a wonderful place to sit and multiply and those bacteria now have no way of being confronted by our own immune system. So you have a wonderful incubator for bacteria to develop and those bacteria then develop toxins. We think of a tooth as being a solid mass, concrete almost, you know, but it's not, it's porous. And so we wouldn't think of leaving something dead in the body anywhere else. You would most likely call that gangrene, but a tooth is porous and it's filled with bacteria after having had root canal treatment. And that research is very, very well documented, even in mainstream endodontic journals, that that there's no way to get all of the bacteria out of a tooth. And now, of course, with our DNA evidence, we know what bacteria are in there.
0: Doesn't this affect the heart and the brain and other areas of the body? And if so, how is it a detriment to the heart and the brain?
1: Well, those toxins, um, it's interesting to go back and look at Weston Price's research from the 20s because there he showed over and over again the toxicities in these teeth and the various organs that they would affect. He produced incredible photographs of the animals that he would inject the toxins into that he had cultured out of root canal teeth oftentimes he could mimic the exact disease that the patient had by taking that root canal tooth and either taking fragments of it and embedding it into the tissue of the experimental animal or making cultures from that tooth and then injecting them into the animal. And it was interesting, and it still is to me today, that it seems like there's no particular organ that is not affected and that it can cause nervous disorders. It can cause issues with the heart. And certainly with the kidneys and every other major organ system can be affected. It's determined by which bacteria are in the tooth.
0: Got it.
1: I'll have to say again, it's so interesting the way many people seem to be able to handle those toxicities. Just like, gosh, you and I both know people who have smoked all their lives and they've handled those toxicities. And yet we know others who have smoked or just been around secondhand smoke and developed carcinoma of the lung. So we all have different capacities for handling these sorts of issues.
0: I would imagine, though, that even if somebody doesn't experience a full-blown disease, the body will always compensate. I mean, that's the intelligence of the body. Even if you don't get a full-blown disease, there's still a compensation function happening, and you may not know what it is.
1: Absolutely. I think there's always that challenge to the immune system. And you know, Most people that we see who are referred to us by their physicians will report that they were doing well, and then all of a sudden there was some sort of a tipping point. Maybe they developed the flu, maybe they got a vaccine, maybe they were exposed to some environmental toxin, and then they've had this sudden demise in their health. Typically, these patients are referred by their physician for us to remove anything that might be a dental toxicity challenge to their immune system.
0: Do you take anything for chelation? You know, there's mercury in the air, there's mercury in a lot of different places, certainly in vaccines, but what do you do to chelate in the day-to-day?
1: I like to boost up my vitamin C. As I recovered from my own mercury toxicity issues, I had multiple bags of high-dose intravenous vitamin C over several years, and I think that was very helpful. The vitamin C is not a good chelator, but it helps elevate our levels of glutathione, and glutathione is the body's natural chelator, especially for heavy metals. So I've chosen to do that over time. And then the other thing that I think is most beneficial is to either get a sauna or find access to a sauna or live in a climate where you can sweat. Sweating is a fabulous way to detoxify. It's gentle. The kidneys and the liver are bypassed when we sweat and we can really detoxify in a nice gentle way. So that's what I did. I bought an infrared sauna And it was a fabulous, actually, turnaround in my health when I really began to consistently sweat.
0: I've heard that these far-infrared saunas are just doing wonders for people.
1: It's a very gentle way to use a sauna. The heat is less than a conventional sauna, but it's more penetrating And there's great data on the use of infrared saunas in terms of their abilities to help us detoxify.
0: When did you bring conscious sedation into your practice? Explain to the audience what it is, please.
1: Conscious sedation can be done one of two ways. It can either be done taking tablets orally, or it can be done intravenously. I much prefer the intravenous route because it's predictable. There's no guesswork. Patients are sedated within a matter of minutes, whereas sometimes the oral route is unpredictable. Some patients respond well to it. Some patients do not. But at any rate, it can be done either way. The intravenous route, in my opinion, is the best way to go because of several reasons. One is, of course, we have patients monitored on heart monitors, EKG and so forth, during the entire procedure. And so we're able to see exactly what's going on. The two drugs that we use primarily are fentanyl and Versed. Those two drugs have antidotes. In other words, if a patient were to have a bizarre reaction to them, there are antidote drugs that can be given, and within a minute to 90 seconds, the effects of the Versed or the fentanyl are gone. So that's a fabulous safety valve for us. And then finally, the reason that I love to use conscious sedation is that we can accomplish so much dentistry in one visit. And it's not uncommon at all for us to sedate someone for six or eight hours and do all of their dentistry in one appointment. In fact, probably 99% of the time, we're doing all of the dentistry in one appointment. Conscious sedation allows us to do that because there's an amazing time compression factor with that. And a six-hour procedure will seem like an hour. And all of those chemical mediators that are released when we're anxious go away. So patients, I think, heal quicker when we use conscious sedation. And certainly when patients awaken from this, they typically are able to get up and move about. And really within a few hours, I feel as not much has happened. So I think it's a fabulous way to to have your dentistry done.
0: Well, I have to tell you, having experienced it at your office... (laughs) i was pretty amazed i think i started to do a prayer and all i know is i don't remember finishing my prayer it was quite quick Mm. i was out and about when i woke up i never felt like i was drugged i never felt groggy i never felt how you feel after you have an anesthetic which was great
1: it it really is and the combination of the drugs that is used today is the same combination that's used typically if a patient were to go in for a day surgery procedure where maybe a colonoscopy or something of that nature. And the reason these drugs are used is because they're so safe. We're very, very thankful to have the EMS literally right next to our office, but I'll have to say in doing almost 5,000 sedations, we've never had to call them because anyone had an issue with the sedation. It's one of the safest protocols and drugs used today.
0: Why do they call it conscious sedation? (laughs) I don't remember being conscious.
1: Interestingly enough, you were. Conscious sedation is called conscious sedation because you still maintain all your own protective reflexes. So you swallow on your own. You certainly breathe on your own. You're not intubated. You wouldn't remember this, but during your procedure, if I had asked you to open a little bit more or to turn... One way or the other, you would have responded and done that. But one of the beautiful things about her said is that there is an amnesic property to it so that your very short-term memory just during the procedure is altered such that you don't recall those things. I think it's wonderful because it does eliminate anxiety.
0: Definitely eliminate anxiety for me. (laughs) (laughs) The thought of having to have my front tooth extracted and anything else put in and that whole thing, I want to tell you, I was much more anxious than I appeared. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Anybody would be. It's a big deal. Now, let's talk a little bit about implants, can we? This is a big deal. And in my particular case, an implant could have but didn't happen. Let's explain to the audience what it is because there's an assumption that everybody knows what it is. What is an implant? Why is it used? Is it used by you?
1: Currently, implants are not used by me. I see a unique group of people, most of whom are sick and they've been referred by their physician or healthcare provider because they're trying to eliminate any challenge to their immune system. Anytime you have something embedded into your tissues that does not have your DNA inscribed into it. There will be some immune challenge. So the typical implant today is put into an area typically where we've had a tooth removed. And the most common implant is made of titanium. And most commonly, the implant has been alloyed. Most of the contents of the implant are titanium. But oftentimes, it's alloyed with other metals, aluminum being a very common one. Well, I have a real aversion to putting aluminum into someone's bone, and even there's quite a bit in the literature about how some people react to titanium. So I'm trying to avoid any of those issues with my patients, and therefore I opt not to put in titanium or titanium alloy implants. The other common implant that's been FDA approved in the United States is one made of zirconium. So zirconium is, in my opinion, a more inert implant. It's been used in Europe for many, many years.
0: Pure zirconium?
1: Yes. And it, quite frankly, has good data. The one issue that remains uh, research data that we need to see, in my opinion, on zirconia is what it does to our immune system. In other words, there's not good immunological data on embedding zirconia implants into bone. Because of the patient group that I typically see who are trying to avoid anything that might be a challenge to their immune system, we choose not to use those. So what would we use? How are we gonna replace a tooth and try not to challenge someone's immune system? The way we do it currently is to put some sort of a bonded, fixed bridge work into the patient's mouth. Hopefully the patient has teeth on either side of where they've had a tooth removed, and we can simply bond the tooth in without having to alter the teeth on either side. In other words, without having to grind them down for a conventional bridge. And then the next choice is if we don't have that option available to us, we will make the patient some sort of an aesthetic, very aesthetic, removable appliance. And our hope is that within the next few years, we have a completely biocompatible implant.
0: Is that being worked on?
1: It is being worked on. In fact, results from a recent research study at Columbia University in New York were just released, whereby a collagen frame that almost looks the shape of a tooth can be embedded into the jawbone, the patient's own stem cell introduced into that framework, and grow the entire tooth. So the article mentioned that patents were being sought after currently by Columbia University in order to get this procedure patented. It made me believe that it wouldn't be long before we have that option available to us.
0: And then the material would be DNA tested or what?
1: Then the material would literally be the patient's own tissues collagen framework would simply reabsorb, but the stem cell from the patient would literally reproduce a tooth. Wow. Yes. This research was pioneered first in pigs, and two years ago, researchers grew the root of a tooth from the pig's own stem cell in the pig's jaw. Unfortunately, they did not get the entire tooth, but work was being done by that group. And there's work going on now around the world to try to utilize a patient's own stem cell to reproduce teeth.
0: It's remarkable. Truly. Do you think it's going to take a long time getting approval?
1: In my mind, I think it's probably not something that we're going to see in the next three or four years, but hopefully within the next five to 10 years, it'll be a routine procedure and we'll be able to abandon titanium and other implants that don't have the patient's own DNA written into them.
0: What do you think about titanium hips?
1: (laughs) Great question. I think there's some difference between titanium that's embedded into an area that does not have ready access to bacteria. See, The implants that we embed into the tissues in the mouth are privy to the bacteria that are in our mouth. And so although the implant success rate in this country in terms of dental implants is great, above 90% of those implants make it long past five years. The issue that we have not looked at, is what sort of challenge are those to our immune system during the time? Just in the same way that we haven't looked at root canal teeth in that same way. We've looked at root canal teeth as being successful because the patient keeps the tooth for a number of years and it even maybe remains uh, asymptomatic, so the patient can hardly tell the difference between it and any other tooth. But what are the challenges during that time to the patient's immune system?
0: Can you talk a little bit about the way that you clean patients' teeth in your office? I thought it was really refreshing and quite different, and I've never been through anything like that. Can you talk to the audience about why you do what you do?
1: The first thing that we do in our office uh, before we clean a patient's teeth is we take a sample of the bacteria that are under the gum line For years, I practiced without a microscope, and now I couldn't practice a minute without a microscope. The microscope allows us to look and see exactly what bacteria are under a patient's gum line. Some people will go to the dentist, and I had patients like this for years, and they'll say, you know, I'm brushing and flossing, and, and still my gum tissues are inflamed. And we would notice that. Their mouths would be clean, but their tissues never looked healthy. Well, now we can identify why that is, and that's because they have a certain type of bacteria under the gum line that continually keeps the tissue inflamed. It bleeds in spite of their efforts to keep their teeth clean. So that's the first thing, and the next thing is that, of course, our hygienists will go around and clean in the customary way, and they'll certainly use ultrasonics and hand-scaling instruments to get the teeth clean, but what we do to really top the procedure off is that we use a little syringe full of ozone to go around. It's delivered through a machine. We use this ozone machine to deliver little micromolars of ozone into the pocket, into that little crevice between the gum and the tooth. And that literally sterilizes that pocket. It, it just cleans out all of those bad bacteria. We love to go back and take another sample of that and look at it under the microscope and see that there's just hardly anything left. And so that really is what I think distinguishes our periodontal department from most other traditional dentists in that we're using a microscope and we're using ozone. Ozone gets a bad rep because we're all aware of ozone action days and we think, gosh, ozone, that must be awful. The truth of the matter is ozone is there to protect us. And the reason we are told to stay inside on an ozone action day is because ozone is easily measured in the atmosphere. It comes down and literally helps clean up the toxicities in the atmosphere, but it's not the ozone itself. If it weren't for ozone, we'd all be dead from the toxicities that pollute this earth. So ozone is tremendously beneficial. There are no known bad side effects to using it. And it really does help clean up the bacteria in the mouth.
0: Can you also talk about your philosophy of flossing versus or in addition to a water pick and how you're recommending in the meantime that we're doing our oral care?
1: Well, it's interesting that the bacteria that are in our mouth and under the gum line are very difficult to get to with floss and toothbrushing. They're just a little too deep. But we are very fond of water picking. Water pick, especially if you have the right tip on it, which is a very pointed rubber tip. If you can take that pointed rubber tip on a water pick and put it under the gum line, you can literally flush the bacteria out. And one of the most effective things to do with a water pick is to take an ounce of organic apple cider vinegar, put that in the water reservoir with about seven ounces of water, and now you have a wonderful solution to help eliminate the bacteria under the gum line. Most of our patients who have bacterial problems, we will suggest that solution right there. Bragg's good old organic apple cider vinegar, one ounce of that to seven ounces of water, is a terrific solution to irrigate your teeth with.
0: Why the apple cider vinegar? What does it do?
1: You know, the apple cider vinegar alters the pH in the environment there, and those bacteria do not appreciate that at all. And so they (laughs) eat... They're either dead on contact or they scatter.
0: You're subtle, doctor. You're subtle. You're killing the bacteria, but you're telling us they won't like it at all. (laughs) You're right. (laughs) I'd hate to have you mad at me. Is there any other material that people can use if it's not apple cider vinegar? Have you found anything else beside
1: that? All sorts of things have been used. And, you know, even diluted solutions of bleach are effective, but we're not fond of chlorine solutions. We really don't recommend that. I think the apple cider vinegar is the best. Another very, very good one is to take a gram or two of powdered vitamin C, put that into the water pick, stir that up until you have a nice solution of it and irrigate with that. That's also a very effective way to control those bacteria.
0: How often do you do it, and how often do you recommend to patients to do this? Once a day, twice a day?
1: I'd recommend it once a day. Now, there are some patients who have struggled and who have such deep pockets between their gums and teeth that twice a day is best. But for most people, once a day and uh, especially before bedtime so that those bacteria don't have the opportunity to sit and have a party overnight under the gum line, to do that right before bedtime is ideal.
0: What's your philosophy on x-rays and how much to do the x-rays, how many x-rays you should get done of the full mouth, etc.?
1: I think anytime we can avoid exposure to radiation, we should. Now quite frankly, it's impossible for me to practice thoroughly and be a quality dentist without good x-rays. I simply can't do it. I can't see in between the teeth, I don't have good x-ray vision. I have to have X-rays. So when we do take X-rays, we certainly use digitized X-rays. Digital X-rays use far less radiation than the typical X-rays, and and I would recommend that for patients to seek out a dentist who's using uh, digital X-rays. That's state of the art, and a good percentage of the dentists in this country use those. Now. We can't say this for everyone, but I wouldn't recommend that people get a full set of x-rays more often than every three years, and a panoramic x-ray every five to ten years. So we want to minimize the radiation exposure, and the best way to do that is simply by using digital x-rays.
0: That's great. There's been a lot of talk about teeth whitening, and I know I asked you this when I just came back from Marble Falls. There's different philosophies about teeth whitening and different ways to whiten your teeth. And for the purists, we're concerned about, would it hurt us? Will it make the teeth so sensitive that our teeth are uncomfortable? What's your philosophy of teeth whitening at this particular juncture of time?
1: Well, i have to say I've gone through phases in my practice. Of course, teeth whitening has been available to us now for 25 years. I certainly whitened my teeth. All of my staff had their teeth whitened. Most of my patients early on in my practice had their teeth whitened. They wanted them whitened and then, of course, after I got sick, I became much more in tune with systemic effects of dentistry and am I challenging someone's immune system by whitening their teeth? There are very well-known and outspoken people in this world who would say it's not wise to bleach your teeth because it's a challenge to your immune system. I'll have to say that I'm in a group of very, I think, innovative and integrative and holistic dentists who have recently done a review of the literature about this, and we could not find evidence that bleaching teeth causes irreversible harm. So I'll have to say that currently, whereas I've gone for years actually without bleaching teeth, I think it's not an issue as long as a patient doesn't take it to an extreme. Bleaching, as you know, can make your teeth sensitive. And the reason is there's an ingredient in the bleach called carbamide peroxide, which breaks down, by the way, into hydrogen peroxide when it meets saliva. Hydrogen peroxide is, I think, a fabulous thing to have on our teeth. It helps kill some of the anaerobic bacteria in our mouth. But it can make our teeth sensitive. If it's making your teeth sensitive, as it does oftentimes on fair-skinned people, then you need to back off from it and bleach maybe every other day or every third or fourth day rather than daily. Also, it can make the gum tissue sensitive. And so if that's the case, then we simply need to back off. The other thing I would encourage people to do is I would not encourage people to bleach if they have mercury-containing fillings because more of the mercury is produced and liberated off of the filling in the presence of this bubbling effervescent bleach. So if a patient is going to bleach his or her teeth, I would certainly recommend that they have their mercury fillings replaced prior to that.
0: I was pretty surprised to find out that back in Los Angeles, when I had mercury taken out of my mouth, when I had two fillings taken out, and I had them replaced with composite. I was in shock to find out later that that composite that supposedly replaced the mercury had aluminum in it.
1: It's true. Many of the composite fillings do have aluminum in it. And the way to find out whether they have aluminum or whether they're biocompatible is that there are at least two laboratories in the world that I know of that can analyze a patient's blood or their serum. To determine what dental materials they're most compatible with and so materials that would have aluminum in it that are released out of the material would typically not be on someone's biocompatibility test.
0: Are you able to mention those labs?
1: I am. One is called Biocomp Lab and interestingly enough both are in Colorado Springs, Colorado and the other is named Clifford Lab, C-L-I-F-F-O-R-D both of them wonderful labs, each using slightly different methods to analyze a patient's serum. And so, unfortunately, we do not get the same results from each lab. However, I will hardly practice without a patient having one of those uh, laboratory results because it really helps us to know what materials the patient's most compatible with.
0: It's fantastic. So exciting, the work that you're doing. It's so complete. What's on the horizon for you in terms of continuous learning? I know you're excited about the biocompatible implants. What else are you looking at right now?
1: Well, I'm excited about the fact that I do see a shift in dentistry. Ten years ago, 90% of the dentists in this country were still placing mercury fillings. Today, it's slightly under 50%. It's hard to believe that still 50% or close to it of the dentists would still place a mercury filling, in my opinion, but we as dentists are so ingrained by our training that that's still going on. But by the same token, I do see real progress in the fact that fewer and fewer dentists are using mercury fillings. I'm excited about that, of course, for the health of our nation, but I'm also excited about that from a toxicity standpoint, literally from a pollution standpoint of our nation, The fact that we will, as a profession, finally, I think someday, we'll have eliminated mercury will mean that we have eliminated the number one source of mercury into our environment in this country. So I'm excited about that. Wow. I'm very excited about the current research and what we have available to us now with DNA. I'm so thrilled to know that the protocols of some of the people who have really advanced the holistic side of dentistry are being proven out because now we know that truly what they were suggesting is based on valid science because truly the bacteria that we deal with in dentistry are among the most potent known to man. Actually, I'll have to say to you, Kim, that after 32 years of practice, I've never been more excited about the future of dentistry or about practicing dentistry. It's an absolute thrill for me to be able to go to the office.
0: I can tell. (laughs) Uh Not not only do you have a state-of-the-art practice, but you have a wonderful spiritual family. Seriously, it was kind of like going to the Star Trek Enterprise, but with a ministry in it. (laughs) It's great. (laughs) One of the things I noticed in your practice is that you don't do anything that doesn't absolutely need to be done. Is it true that most people should have their wisdom teeth taken out? And what is your philosophy about that? And then I want to talk to you a little bit about braces.
1: You know, one of the things I said to my patients early in my career was, I think we need to remove your wisdom teeth because you're not able to keep them clean. I would certainly never say that to a patient now. There are wisdom teeth that need to be removed. Oftentimes they're coming in at an angle, they're putting pressure on the adjacent tooth, and they can truly be an issue, a health issue. But Oftentimes in the past, those teeth that I encourage people to have removed, in my opinion now, should have been kept because wisdom teeth can be a wonderful thing to have in the future. If you happen to lose another tooth in proximity, to it, they can be a wonderful anchor tooth. We can teach people how to clean around their wisdom teeth. And if you have a wisdom tooth removed, you have a strong chance of developing a cavitation, as we've already mentioned earlier in the segment. So right. I would now encourage people to keep their wisdom teeth if they are erupted into proper position and are not causing some kind of undue crowding of the adjacent teeth. So I certainly had a change in my philosophy about that over time.
0: My understanding as a young child and in my teens was that it's part of standard of care, oh, you just get them out.
1: Well, that's right. You know, And and you mentioned, why am I so conservative about replacing fillings and crowns and that sort of thing? The reason is, so often in dentistry, one thing can lead to another. In other words, we as a child will have a filling done. And of course, when you and I were growing up, that was a mercury filling. And then we either break the filling or we break a portion of the tooth, and then we have a crown only to find out a year or two later that we need a root canal, only to find out a few years later that the tooth needs to be removed. And then we have an option of an implant, and it goes on and on. And I think what we need to be doing in dentistry is be doing thorough dentistry, for sure, but doing it as conservatively as possible. Quite frankly, in this country, I think we're doing far too many crowns on teeth that could be restored beautifully with bonded restorations, which save more of the tooth and don't predispose the tooth to nerve damage further down the road.
0: That's astute. I don't think people also know that they can have their root canals removed.
1: They can have their root canals removed, and the patients who referred to me from integrative physicians around the world encouraging the patients to have those root canal teeth removed because of the toxicities.
0: My dear friend's child had three root canals, and I was so horrified and so upset. He's a young boy with asthma. I thought, my God, that's young. It's young. He was at a private school, and he went to a dentist there. And I just wonder how many kids are getting root canals now.
1: Well, a lot of kids get root canals because many of the root canals are performed on their primary teeth, on their baby teeth. It's a very, very common procedure. The advantage to that is that the child gets to keep the tooth and it helps hold the space open for the permanent teeth to come in. The disadvantage is that there will be bacteria associated with that tooth until the day it falls out. And that can be a challenge to the patient's immune system. So, It's a very, very difficult thing to measure. How could we, for example, ever say that the asthma or any other health condition of that child is caused by his teeth? But there are certainly many reports of people who have had root canals removed, whether they're adults or children, only to see their health issues clear up.
0: Okay, and the last thing I want to ask you about is braces. My older sister got braces first, then I did. And our teeth definitely move. Now, my front tooth reabsorbed. I want you to explain to the audience what that is. And I don't remember ever being hit in the face, even as a tournament tennis player for 13 years. The only other way that is known is that the braces can sometimes move the teeth too quickly, at least during that time. Is that accurate information?
1: It's accurate information. Uh, Teeth can be moved too aggressively. And some teeth seem to be more apt to resorb like yours. It's actually a fairly rare occurrence. Resorption of a tooth is where the root of the tooth typically begins to dissolve away, even though the patient does not have decay. It's very well noted in the literature. Resorption is it can happen from inside the tooth, which is called internal resorption, or it can happen on the outside from outside in, which is called external resorption. Either way, it typically means that the tooth is doomed. When it happens, it's typically not a painful issue, but the tooth loses its foundation. It's kind of like having termites in your foundation of your home. And before you know it, you're left without a foundation. Sounds
0: disgusting. (laughs) Well. (laughs) I lost my tooth from those termites. (laughs) And, you know, and here's the other thing. This was a shocker because not only do I floss every day, but I also clean my tongue twice a day and drink tons of water. So it was shocking that it wasn't an issue of hygiene, but that this can happen from moving the teeth too aggressively.
1: We see it most often from trauma, like blunt trauma, like hitting your mouth on the steering wheel during a wreck. And then any time from months to years later, the tooth will begin to resorb. But we do see it also as a result of orthodontics. Fortunately, It's a rare occurrence, but I'm so, so sorry that you were one of those people who got to experience it.
0: I consider myself blessed and lucky now that I've met you and I know about revisionist dentistry. You're helping so many people, and I really want to thank you for being on the show, and I think we've done a comprehensive segment here. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, we have been listening to, learning from, and talking with Dr. Stuart Nunnally of Nunnally & Freeman, you can reach him and the practice by going to healthysmilesforlife.com. We thank you, and we hope that you will join us again in the future as you have more to share with the public. Thank you so much for being our guest, Dr. Nellie.
1: Thank you, Kim. What a privilege to be with you. God bless you.